Hi, and welcome to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. My name is Ruth Haley Barton. I'm the founder of the Transforming Center, and I'm here with Steve Ween, senior pastor of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. He's also a Transforming Community alumni, which means that he and I have been in relationship for a long time. We know how to have fun in a conversation, and we are looking forward to having fun together today. Here we are, Ruth. Yes. Episode six. Transformation through self-knowledge and self-examination. And so I first learned the examen from you. It's a centuries-old tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about what it is and why it's a helpful tool mm-hmm. for pastors, leaders, and really anyone yeah. in terms of bringing their whole self to mm-hmm. God. Yeah, so the examen has to do with several different things. We tend to narrow it down to being about one thing, and that is asking God to show us our sin. But really, <laughs> which is yes, awesome. It's, yes, it's, God, we all look forward sin. to that, don't we? Um, but really, the examen in Christian tradition encompasses several other aspects. So it begins with an examen of the presence of God, like an awareness, a growing awareness of the presence of God. And I usually teach this out from Psalm 139 where the psalmist starts by saying, uh, Oh God, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I rise up and when I lie down, you know, you know my thoughts from far away. And so the psalmist is affirming the fact that God, God is always present with us, but obviously sometimes we're not aware of God's presence. So the examen starts with really finding ourselves in the presence of God as our ultimate orienting reality, and that there's nothing we can do to put ourselves outside of that presence, which is an, an, a really significant context or foundation for the examen of conscience, because um, you can't really do a good job of self-examination if you don't have a a hardcore, solid sense that there's nothing that you can find out about yourself that can take you out of the presence of God. Nothing. Um, and the scriptures affirm this in all sorts of different ways, uh, that we can't do anything to fall out of the love of God or to fall out of the presence of God. So because many of us have had such um, uh, sort of con- relationships where we are afraid that people might leave us if they find out who we really are. We don't understand that kind of unconditional love and that unconditional presence. And so God has to teach us that. So the first part of the examen is to become aware of the fact that God's presence is always with us and we can never fall out of it. And so the first aspect of examen is to examine the presence of God in our lives. And particularly at the end of a day or something like that, we can go back over a day and we can say, God, show me where you were there and I missed it. I didn't know it. And I missed your invitations and I missed a sense of your presence, but you were there. Can you show me how you were there? So the first part of the examen is just to go back over our days and to examine our days um, in light of where God's presence was and to invite God to show us where we might have missed it. And that practice all by itself begins to foster a very solid sense that God is, even when I don't feel God with me, God is there guiding me, protecting me. Um, helping me to continue to respond to his invitations in life, helping me to be wiser than I really am, yes. you know, things like that. And that's, that is one of the most exciting things, actually, that can happen in our spiritual lives, is to become more and more aware of the presence of God, even in the ordinary moments of our lives, and even in the moments that are very challenging or hard or difficult, to be able to affirm that, yes, God was there. Even though I'm not always as aware as I could be, God is always there. So that's the first 12 verses of Psalm 139. Then... Um, the examen also can have to do with 
asking God to help us to see where we are doing well, yeah. where we are like Christ, where God is doing his work of transforming us and how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So now we're settling into this place of knowing, like the psalmist did, that God knew us from the very beginning, that God created us the way that we are, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God, um, first and foremost, sees us as being a part of God's good creation. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. So part of the examine process is that we can look at our lives and we can say, wow, that's pretty cool that God yeah. made me this way. And so one of the things I'll sometimes encourage people to do is to affirm something about themselves that they think is really good and something very unique, not something as superficial as the fact that I like the fact that I'm six feet four, you know, or I like the fact that I have blue eyes, but something more substantial and unique and to say, uh, this is who I am, and I celebrate who God has created me to be, and I love being the person that God has made me to be. You know, I find that oftentimes people are more comfortable confessing some deep, dark sin oh, yeah. than saying, I really like the way God created me. I like the person that I am in some essential way, you know? So that's a part of the examine, too, is that's to be able good. to celebrate who we are as God has created us to be. And then to be able to be more honest about some of the darker places as well. And so this really, Steve, this really is the progression. The progression is, first of all, to find ourselves in the unconditional loving presence of God and to know for sure that we can't fall out of it. That's the first move in the examine. Then the next move in the examine is to be able to celebrate the person that God has made us to be and to see that as part of God's good creation and to know that and to feel that and to live out of that. And then in the context of that kind of safety with God, then we can finally say, okay, that's really good, but there's this other dark little thing over here, and I'm really not sure about it. Yeah. And so the psalmist goes into a place that's almost like a tirade in yeah, Psalm 139. It's dark. He vomits out this rage and this hatred. Yeah. And, and then he says to God, now, now that I've vomited all this out, I really don't know if this is good or bad. I don't know if this anger is good, righteous indignation. I don't know if it's a terrible, dark, hateful thing. I'm going to need you to show me. And so then finally those famous verses, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Um, there's this kind of safety that gets cultivated through solitude and silence and scripture and all of that, that now finally we can say to God, I'm going to vomit out the last part of this that I'm really not sure about because I know I can trust you. I know you'll never leave me. But now I do need you to search me and show me where I'm falling short of um, Christ in my life and falling short of the person that you've created me to be and then to show me what it might look like to walk in some sort of a new way. So you can do the examen at the end of a day. Uh, some people actually incorporate it into their Sabbath rhythm where they look back over a whole week. But what you do is you kind of imagine that someone's been following you around with a camera. Of course, it's not hard for us to imagine that in right. our day of <laughs> right. reality TV, but it's better than that. So someone's following us around with a video camera, and later on that night we say to God, hey, would you look at these, would you look at this day with me and show me where you were and where you weren't? Show me when I really did live up to my life in Christ. Show me the places where I fell short. And it's you and Jesus together looking back over the moments of your day and allowing God to show you what he wants to show you. It's not you going back over your day right. trying to have... Self-improvement self projects. Yeah, and sending yourself into spiraling morbid you know, subjectivity, which right. I'm very prone to. Um, and it's also not about rationalizing either. 
going through the day and saying, I was just perfect, thank you right. very much. Right. But it's creating space for God to say, no, this is, there's lots of things I could show you today, but this is what I'd like you to uh. see today. So this is a God-guided practice. It's not something that we do in our own human striving and our own human attempts to better ourselves. It's a spiritual practice because we are opening up to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Spirit to guide the process. Beautiful. And so um, can we talk about, because that's going to lead us Mm -hmm. into discovering true self and false Mm -hmm. self and really differentiating between what is really, really Mm -hmm. me and what is my ego self? What is my, um, and so um, can you talk about how the examine helps us to discover true self and false self and what Mm -hmm. those are in terms of Mm self-knowledge? Well, all of us have an authentic self. I want to start with the good yes, news, you yes. know, because the good news is that all of us have been created as a good part of God's creation, and God has created us in, as an authentic human being that he sees and knows and has uh, brought into this world as a gift. So all of us have an authentic self, and in fact, um, it is that part of ourselves that's being um, redeemed, you know, yeah. every day by the presence of Jesus in our lives, and it's the, the part of us that is um, in Christ, you know, ourselves in Christ, but our unique selves in Christ. The false self is something that develops from birth, maybe even before birth on. So that tender little authentic self that God knows and that God has created is born into a sinful world. And from the very get-go, that that little being has a, a sense of survival. And it's amazing that God has built that in to us as human beings. So it's actually a good thing, yes. which I think is very encouraging. You wouldn't have survived without your false self, oh, well. and neither would I, because all of us are born into a sinful world. All of us are born into sinful families. We don't want to admit that, but we are. And so from the very get-go, that little authentic self has to learn how to defend itself in the world and how to adapt itself to whatever it is that feels frightening or scary or off in their early environment. And we all have um, primal anxieties that are built into the persons that we are, our need for survival, our anxiety about whether or not we're loved and approved of, um, whether or not we're safe, you know. Um, And so all of us find ways unconsciously to try to ensure those things for ourselves based on our own human effort. Um, It's stunning to see it, but it's true. And so... um, that that's the adaptive false self. I'm using the adapt the word adaptive in a certain way. It's the part of us that adapts to whatever yeah. it was that was broken or scary in our early environment. And that that self serves us really well early on. And in fact, most of us wouldn't have survived our early childhood if we hadn't known how to defend against whatever there was going on in our culture. But then eventually God begins to call us further and God says, you know what, I don't want you to trust any longer in those self-protective strategies that you developed as a child. Now I'm asking you to trust me rather than trust in your own strategies. And that is quite the transition in the spiritual life because now you are being invited to move from the false adaptive self to the true self in God. And God calls us to do that thing we think we can't do, which is to let go of our false self Uh, strategies and now to begin to learn how to abandon ourselves and all of our needs for safety and security and affection and approval and survival and power and control and agency and all that god is saying you know now i'm asking you not to trust in your false adaptive self to secure those things for yourself but now the spiritual journey is an invitation for you to surrender to me and to trust me with all of those things i remember one of the things you said during this retreat that just I mean, the room erupted in laughter and then almost weeping Mm -hmm. when you said, now, 
a really horrifying moment mm-hmm. in ministries when you realize you were probably hired for your false mm-hmm. self. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Nobody wants to hear this. You pay really big bucks for that kind of an unsettling statement. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And then if, if you if you realize that, what to do with that? Yeah. Well, the ways that we discover how to make a place for ourselves in the world, how do I get affection and approval, and how do I get a sense of significance, and how do I prove to people that I'm worth something, that's different for all of us. Um, but we all do it. We all find out the ways that to make ourselves feel accepted and approved of in this world. And so when we go into a hiring situation, we present those things yeah. to people and we say, I am really good at being successful in this way. And we're good at making people like us and approve of us and things like that. My biggest weakness is I work too hard. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I'm a perfectionist, you know. <laughs> I hate really to, awful. I hate I, to I, break it to you, oh. but I'm a perfectionist. And yeah. so we somehow find a way to present those as um, being the best things about us. And the, the hiring committee is like, yeah, we want awesome. that. We want that. Yeah. Um, so then they hire that person based on how they've presented their false self strategies. And so the challenging moment comes when the person has taken the job and they're in leadership and everybody's loving their overfunctioning, they're loving their perfectionism, they're loving yeah. the fact that they know how to be successful. And then that person starts on the deeper spiritual journey and says, you know what, God is weaning me away from these things and that you know, hasn't been my, my truest self. And in fact, you're able to start to see the dark side. Yes. So if a person is really on a spiritual journey, they might be able to say, now I see how that perfectionism has been hurting other people because not only am I perfectionist about myself, I've been insisting on perfection from everybody else too, and it's really hurt them. Yeah. Or I've been so focused on success that I've driven my staff to utter de- exhaustion and depletion. And in fact, maybe some people have left because they can't keep up with my own drive for success, things like that. Um, people who don't know how to deal with conflict and all they want is peace all the time. And so they don't acknowledge or they don't engage conflict. And so the conflicts have been simmering underneath and they can't get the senior pastor to come into the room to have a hard conversation. Well, all of a sudden, their peacemaking and their ability to believe that everything's at peace is now not serving them very well in a leadership environment where some truth needs to be told and some conflict needs to be walked into and navigated well. And so the false self is no longer serving that person's leadership. Um, And so then, you know, that's the time where we start to let some of those things fall away and we're invited into a deeper level of trust in God. So the person who can only handle peaceful environments says, you know what, I'm going to have to trust God and I'm going to have to walk into a conflictual situation and trust that God's going to get me out of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or I'm going to have to let some of these trappings of success fall away and trust that God's will will still be good enough. You know? I think this is a great time mm-hmm. to talk about the Enneagram because the exam is a great mm-hmm. tool. The Enneagram is another really great tool for knowing yourself and others. So if you want to describe what mm-hmm. that is and why it's helpful. Yeah. Well, um, the Enneagram actually, I, I think, helps our process of self-examination because it actually gives us a way of of looking at ourselves and seeing what our particular patterns might be. Because it's a, it's a pretty general topic, the way I just described it, but the Enneagram actually makes it a little bit more concrete. So the Enneagram uh, also is an ancient tool that comes out of our, our tradition that identifies nine different spaces, if you will, which is really a way of saying nine different patterns uh, for which that, that people have used to secure these sort of primal um, areas of anxiety and to fix that for themselves and to solve that for themselves. And the Enneagram helps people to identify that more clearly and to see it for what it is. 
So it's nine numbers, if you will, and um, each number identifies a particular way of being a false self in the world and securing certain um, very legitimate human needs, but doing it on our own terms. And maybe that's very important to say, that there are legitimate needs that each of us have as human beings. So we do need to know that we're loved. We do need to know that we're approved of. We do need to have a sense of security in life that we're safe. We do need to feel like we can do something and do it well. Um, We do have a need to figure things out and to have the right information that will help us to live our lives well. Uh, We do need to have a sense that we're special to the people that we love. We do need um, to have a sense that it's possible to find peace. You know, that is something that human beings want is to live in peace, you know. But those things can be pushed, they can be magnified, and we can want those things at any price, and we can also find uh, ways to secure that for the, for ourselves that have nothing to do with trusting in God. And the Enneagram helps us to identify those ways of being in the world that have to do with trusting ourselves rather than trusting God. Yes. Um, so when you really start seeing your false self, mm-hmm. and if you want to study more about the Enneagram, uh, Richard Rohr has written a great book. There's a new book out called The Road Back to You, mm-hmm. another fantastic yeah. resource. So check it out. Um, but when you really start seeing your false self for what it really is and for how it's helped you, and you can even thank your false mm-hmm. self for getting yes. you through thank God for it. the, the yeah. tough mm-hmm. things in your past. But when you start seeing it, when it comes to walking through the threshold of a more mature relationship mm-hmm. in Christ, it can be pretty devastating. So what is most helpful when you start to get in touch with that um, and how much you've functioned out of your yeah. false self? How do you help people walk through that threshold, mm-hmm. if it is a threshold? Yeah. Well, I believe it is when you start seeing that. And by the way, it is a grace yes. from God. It's, yes. it's it's a challenging grace, for sure. It's like a severe mercy yes. to begin to see this. But some people you know, go to their graves never having seen their false self and living their whole life up until they die out of their false self patterns. So it is a grace when God brings us to this sort of self-knowledge. So that let's keep that in mind. I do think this is another place where spiritual direction is really important because otherwise you can sort of just spin out. Um, And so I think that that time in my life when I stepped off the ministry treadmill, um, stepped out, was a time of letting go of my own false self patterns, at least to some extent. So the fact that I had overly identified with my role as a leader, the fact that I was over-identified with my gifts and, you know, overly identified with... um, proving that I was somebody, you know, through the things that I did. To let go of those things and also to let go of the ministry context, which was the only place our family, you know, would have seen as being worthy right. of receiving those gifts. Um, we were all overly identified with it. So um, to let go of those things, while it feels um, in some ways almost sacrilegious, it, it was that letting go that we're talking about. I let go of identifying myself in those terms. I let go of those patterns by which I had already started securing a sense of self. Um, And that by itself was frightening, but also transformative. I've never related to ministry again in the same way because I was willing to let go of it for a while. So I would not have been able to do that though without a spiritual director who knew that that was the path. Okay. You see? see, Okay. Because you've brought that up several times over the episode, Mm -hmm. this this critical moment yeah. where you stepped away yeah. for two years. Mm-hmm. I want to ask the question, if you were someone's spiritual mm-hmm. director, because let's say 30% of the listeners right now 
are are at that moment yes. where they're mm-hmm. saying, I might need to step away from mm-hmm. it all. Yeah. Uh, if you were someone's spiritual director, what questions would you start to ask them to help them? And you're not going to solve anything for anyone mm-hmm. right now. Let's just say it right, right now. Right. You're not going to answer yeah, anyone. It's such a personal yeah. conversation. So right. I know we can't do that. Mm-hmm. But there are some questions you would start to ask to try to determine, do I stay and mm-hmm. figure it out or do I need to leave? Right, right. Well, it's going to be different for everyone, and I'm always really careful to say when I share my own story, I'm not saying that any of you are going to have to step away from ministry, because you might not have to. God might show you the way to do it without having to step away. Um, For me, because I was a pastor's kid, there was no way for me to separate it all out without really separating it for a while. Um, The the question that I I find to be so powerful, and, and this is sort of how my spiritual director framed it for me, I had some very deep biblical, theological, and practical questions about faith at the time. And because I was in a staff role in a church, it was not possible for me to process those questions while I was in such um, such a prominent role. Right. Um, there was just no way to do that well or to do it honestly. And the way that she framed it, which was so beautiful to me, was she said, you know, these are your spiritual questions, and if you don't ask these questions right now and take them into your relationship with God, I thought I was broken psychologically. But she said, no, these are your spiritual questions. And if you don't ask these questions and take them into your relationship with God and get enough space to ask them, your your spiritual journey is going to be stymied. It's going to be aborted because th- these are your questions, you know, and you need to take these into your relationship with God. And you have to have a way of really walking into them. Um, otherwise, your journey is going to stay right here. And so at that point, I had to ask myself, what do I want more? Do I want to take my journey with God? Or do I want this position that I have in ministry? And when it came down to that, I knew absolutely that I wanted God more. Yeah. That I wanted it way more than anything that I already had. But if I couldn't get to that place of desire to say, I want God more, um, I wouldn't have been able to take the steps either. So So it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really hearing the echoes of the, mm-hmm. the sacred rhythms. Yeah. Cultivating silence and solitude. Mm-hmm. Cultivating a deep life of prayer where you're yeah, asking where you can, the tough and you, where you can say something true to God. Yep. You know? Yes. I'm, I'm like I've heard you say one time. Maybe you have said it in one of the previous episodes, but you got to a point where you said, "I'm sick of doing. I'm sick of writing about God mm-hmm. and speaking about God. I want to experience God yeah. myself." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when that desire bubbles up mm-hmm. to the surface. Right. It's like you got to pay attention to that. Right. The other thing that's so important that I've said many, many times, not here, but in other places, is that in the spiritual journey, in the language of formation, the questions we're willing to ask ourselves are more important than the answers we think we know, which is going to scare some people as I say it. Um, But the reason that that is so true is that God is bigger than anything we think we know. And if we're not willing to walk into these kinds of questions, God can't be any bigger than the boxes that we've placed God in. And the questions are the window or the door that we throw open for the wind of the Spirit to blow in in some new way. And so um, when she was able to be clear with me that these questions were significant and that I needed to be able to ask them in order to go any place new with God, that that made it clear to me. I could not ask the questions where I was in the in the ministry role that right. I had. Um, I couldn't I couldn't ask the questions that I had while staying within the conservative milieu that I'd been in for so long. And I wanted God more. Was that validating mm-hmm. to hear that versus this feeling that I must be broken if I'm having these feelings? Mm-hmm. 
was it validating to go, no, the, these questions are so essential? Yeah, it was hopeful. Yeah. The, the, the idea, when, when she framed it that way, that yeah. it wasn't something to be fixed, but it was questions that needed to be brought into this intimate relationship with God, the hope of that, that maybe I really was on a spiritual journey. Yes. I thought I was falling off the path yeah. at that point. I thought, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what was happening. But the idea that, no, this is the journey, you're not falling off the journey. This, this actually is the journey. Is the journey. And if you're willing to hear God's invitations to you and say, yes, there's, there's a world that could open up for you. It might not be the world you've known, but there is a world in God that God wants to lead you into if you're willing, you know, to let go of some things. And I think also, I think many of us would like to take a faith journey without it requiring any faith. I just love it when people talk about the fact that they're on a faith journey. It makes me want to ask, okay, so where are the places where you're being called to exercise faith? You don't get to have a faith journey if you're not out on any edge, right, right? Of your faith. Right. So let's be careful how we use that language. You know? Oh, that's good. Um, and so this place where we have to let go of the handholds that we've had before in order to reach for something new, that's that's the journey. That's that's the frontier right there. I like to think of it as the trapeze artist who has to let go of the one bar in order to be able to reach out far enough to get the other bar. You can't have it both ways, my friends. We don't get to have it both ways. No. You have to do some letting go in order to get far enough out to reach what's next. And many of us wish it weren't so, but it is. That's the nature of the journey. Yeah. Uh, I have a thing around creation. Creation mm-hmm. in day one speaks mm-hmm. to all of our new beginnings, yeah. right? There's chaos mm-hmm. before there's the light of day yes. one. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's unrest. There's, um, there's a sense of incompleteness right. and something that needs to be fulfilled before we get to move into something else. So, yeah. um, well, lastly, I want to ask... Uh, as it relates to self-knowledge, confession mm-hmm. that maybe is considered a lost yeah. uh, practice in the Protestant world. Uh, how do you see it as helpful? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's been lost is is some of the aspects of it. We do we as Protestants have this sort of individualized practice of confession where we confess to God and God alone which relieves us from ever having to confess to another person or um, it relieves us of humbling ourselves when we're in the community together. So we just keep it really, really private between me and God. And then the rest of the practice isn't there. When I think that when, when confession is being practiced in a really fruitful, healthy way in our lives, it has at least three elements. There is the practice of confessing to God and God alone. You know, David says against God and God alone have I sinned. Um, But then there is an interpersonal aspect to it. And it could be having a spiritual director or a confessor or a priest or someone. Of course, we've lost that. The right. whole That whole aspect of actually confessing out loud to another person who can pronounce some absolution. I believe that is something we can do for each other yes. in community through the priesthood of all believers. I, I yes. believe in the priesthood of all believers and that this area of confession is one place where we can serve one another by reminding one another of the forgiveness that's there for us in Christ when we're brave enough to say our, our confessions out loud yeah. to another person. So there's the inter, interpersonal part that has to do with having a confessor, perhaps. There's also the interpersonal part that has to do with actually confessing to the per- person that we've wronged. And that's the most uncomfortable place. Yeah. But I'm telling you, if, I can, if I'm only confessing privately to God and generally in the liturgical confession in the, in the church, but I'm not owning my sin with you as the person that I've sinned against, well, that's not very transformative, is it? 
Um, so there has to be that interpersonal part where we confess our sins to one another. And because we've worked on with this this practice so much in our own environment here in the Transforming Center, it's not unusual at all for us to just own the false self stuff that produced a situation. Yeah. I mean, it's just so natural for us to do that. Um, and you'll hear it all the time. You'll hear people saying, I'm sorry, that was my, you know, that was, that yeah. was my false self. I yes. know it was, let's, let's move on, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's that interpersonal part and then there is the corporate aspect. And I do think there's something really healthy about corporate confession where in the company of believers, we, we make, um, confessions in a liturgical way or even as it relates to specific confessions that have affected the body of Christ. Yes. And and standing up and saying, I have done this. It's affected our life together. God and I are working on this, and I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes. Or we have done this. Mm-hmm. And maybe I didn't totally do it, but we did yes. it. Yes. And, and, and so, I colluded by yes. not saying anything yes. or by you know just being here while yes. these things were happening. So I think specificity, you know, is, is really important at times that not only specificity about what you actually did, but where it came from inside you. Yeah. Um, like, like I treated you really poorly, um, in a meeting in front of other people. And now I realize, you know, my ego was kind of tweaked. I wish that good idea was mine. I wanted to take you down. I was competitive. That's just a part of who I am, but I have confessed this to the Lord. I, I believe God is really showing me the path out of that kind of behavior. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Can you forgive me? So there, you know, in a confession like that, there are lots of elements. There is self-knowledge. I'm yep. really acknowledging what I know about myself to you, not just the act, the action or the behavior, but what I've come to know about myself. I'm actually asking forgiveness, which creates an, a healing opportunity between the two of us. Yes. Because then you get a chance to actually say, yes, I forgive you. And we're restored. Yes. There's a relational element there, a healing. No wonder the Bible says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. There's a healing that needs to take place. Yes. And then there's the making it right. And and sometimes we stop short of that and saying, I am really sorry. Can you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to make this right? And that is significant. I remember one time having an experience where someone really did slander me and they were able to make a personal confession, but because I was so stunned by the fact that this person actually did this, because yeah. I, I mean, I would never have expected yeah. to be slandered in that way. Um, he didn't ask, is there anything that I can do to make it right? And I didn't suggest it. So there was a tiny part that was missing yeah. because in slander, I really would have preferred for him to go back to other people and clear it up. Yeah. And I would have, if he had asked me, what can I do to make it right? I would have said, well, you could go back to those people and tell them that your comments were slanderous. That would really be, that would be so helpful and healing if you could yeah. do that. Yeah. Self-knowledge, self-examination. And um, confession. And confession. That's the culminating moment of self-examination is, is confession. And I think that's important because then... There can be freedom mm-hmm. for, you, oh, for yes. ourselves, for yeah. others. We healing in the healing. relationships yes. where things happened. Um, because otherwise it can feel like introspection, yeah. morbid, um, you know, just self-knowledge for self-knowledge's right. sake. But when it leads to confession, freedom, Forgiveness. moving on. Because then, um, you know, many of us, I think, are actually walking around with carrying heavy burdens of things that are unconfessed. Oh. And we haven't received forgiveness. We haven't been with another human being who could mediate the love of Christ to us in a moment like that. And it's just a dark place that we have to carry and hold. And God offers us, as you said, freedom uh, from that burden. All right. Well, 
that's episode six. Episode seven is coming up next, and we're going to touch on the art and practice of spiritual discernment. We're going to talk about the difference between decision-making and discerning. So anything you want to tee up about that? No, but there is one more thing I want to say about self-examination, especially as it relates to leadership. And that is that if we as leaders are not involved in an ongoing process of self-examination, it is quite possible that our leadership can be a force for evil than a force for good. And the place where we see this very, very clearly is in the story of Moses, where because he had so much unresolved within him about his past life and how he felt about his childhood and he didn't even know who he was. Was he an Egyptian? Was he a Hebrew? Um, He carried anger, and that anger exploded at different times. And it wasn't until later on in the wilderness that he began to see how his early experiences had resulted in a kind of leadership that was volatile and undisciplined and unrefined, and really it was a force for destruction. And so if if Christian leaders are not engaging in a process of self-examination, it is possible that our leadership can be a harmful thing to other people rather than a good thing. So Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is close at hand. Well, in our leadership, more than any other area, probably we say, I want to be a force for good. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, well, in that very place where I want to be a force for good, evil is close at hand. Well, what is that? Those are the places that are unexamined within us, where we have not yet been able to acknowledge the fact that our leadership might be coming out of darker places within us, and it's destructive to other people. So I would really encourage us as leaders to take real responsibility for ourselves and our leadership by engaging in a regular practice of self-examination and then making confession when we need to. So well said. And I think we've all experienced leaders who are harmful because yes, they haven't done the work. That's and right. And leaders who have done the work mm-hmm. and have been gifts to that's us. That's right. That's right. So um, well said, yeah. Ruth. I'm so glad you you thought of that to say. Uh, that'll do it for episode mm-hmm. six. And we'll be back in episode seven with the art and practice of spiritual discernment. Thanks so much for listening today. There are so many podcasts out there, and we are grateful that you've chosen to spend this 30 minutes with us. Thank you so much, Steve, for such a great set of questions and for taking your own step of faith to join a transforming community so long ago in 2011. If you're a pastor or a clergy person or hold a leadership position in some Christian ministry organization, and if you want to forge a stronger connection between your soul and your leadership, and if the topic of today strikes a chord with you, um, consider this as an invitation to learn more about the Transforming Community, a two-year experience of spiritual formation for pastors and Christian leaders. Our experience is grounded in scripture. It's animated by a Trinitarian approach to transformation in community. It's informed by the richness and the diversity of our Christian heritage. So if you'd like to take advantage of that, just visit our blog, transformingcenter.org, find the show notes for this episode, and we'll also have links there to the other resources that we have mentioned in this podcast. Thank you for listening. We pray that these resources and this conversation will be an ongoing blessing for you in your life and leadership.